Well, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I hope you gathered up some uh, message notes before you came in. As we continue in this uh, series on winning your war, but in this section we're focusing primarily on dressing for success. How, how do we utilize the spiritual armor that God has given to us in order for us to win our battle? And, of course, one of the battles that we fight is maintaining peace in the midst of chaos, right? When everything is going well in life, it's easy to maintain peace, but when everything cuts loose and it's chaotic and like we've been in these last many months with COVID-19 and everything else that's going on, uh, how, do you, how do you maintain peace through all of that and how does God grow you through that process? So that's going to be the subject matter for uh, us this morning. So Paul, as he writes, he says in verse 10 of chapter 6 of Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So with these first three um, pieces of the armor, we, these are the pieces that we are supposed to be wearing all the time. The next three pieces that we will start with next week, he says, now take up. So these are things that need to be a part of our day-in and day-out experience. So he, he talks about our feet being fitted with the gospel of peace. In our day and time, um, shoes are everything, right? Some of you ladies have so many shoes you could wear a pair a day for the next 365 days. I get that. I understand that. Seeing closets like that. We have casual shoes. We have dress shoes. We have shoes that we wear to work. We have shoes for everything. And, of course, it always reminds me of the movie Forrest Gump. And uh, any fans of Forrest Gump out there? And so he's uh, sitting on the bench. He's having a conversation with a nurse while he keeps looking at her feet. And he notices her footwear. And finally he stops and he says, you know, Mama said you can always tell about a person by what they wear on their feet. You can tell where they've been and you can tell where they're going to go. Well, that's true. So if you look at a person's footwear, it can tell you something about them, uh, depending on what it is. Maybe that, that is their job, or maybe they're just out playing tennis, or maybe they're playing golf, or maybe they're playing some other sport, and they'll be wearing some kind of footwear that is designed specifically for that athletic activity. So it's no surprise that the next piece of armor that Paul directs our attention towards is that of footwear the shoes that the Roman soldiers would be wearing. And you'll notice he says about this that we are to be, there is to be a readiness. He says, uh, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Readiness means that you're going to be prepared at any given moment to deal with your enemy. Satan, right? He, remember, this is the war that's behind the war. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and power of the air. And Paul says, I want you to be ready at any given moment when that war unleashes upon you. And so the opposite of readiness or preparation is what? Being sluggish, being unable to move, 
All right, it's kind of like on Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving's just around the corner, and you know how it is on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, you, you wear your uh, sweatpants, first of all, because you don't want to have to unbuckle. You know you're going to get pony up to the table after, the, like, the third helping. You are like a stuffed pig. You can't fit one more thing in your stomach until somebody says, dessert anyone? And all of a sudden, we got some room, right? So we, br- we bring in the dessert. We unbuckle our belts, loosen our pants, do whatever we have to. What happens about an hour later? Everybody is crashed out on a couch, a bed, the floor. We are sluggish. I mean, if the enemy came cascading into our house at that moment in time, we can't move. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> just take me, right? All right. So this is kind of the contrast that Paul's making. We don't want to be sluggish. We don't want to be unprepared for when Satan comes against us. We need to constantly be ready for whatever attack he makes against us at any given moment on any given day. And this is why having your feet fitted with the gospel of peace is so, so important. And so you are ready to do what you're called upon to do. So the Roman soldiers' shoes were meant to accomplish three things. Number one, it was to provide them with traction. Uh, Their shoes, sometimes they were like a boot, sometimes they were like a leather sandal that went usually up to their knees, uh, the straps or or the boot partway up. And in the bottom of them, they had like, uh, you know, like football cleats, all right? That's what we, we would liken it to. Uh, it wasn't quite like that, but that was the understanding of it. And, and the purpose for spikes or cleats uh, on a football field is what? You want to be stationary. You don't want to be anyone just to be able to push you. If you're running back and you want to make a sharp cut, you, wanna, you don't want your feet sliding out from under. So you want to be stable. You want to be stationary. You want to have traction, so when soldiers went into battle, they didn't want anyone being able to, you know, knock them off their feet, having no traction, pushing them back. They wanted to be able to stand firm. They wanted to stand firm in readiness for the battle that is in front of them, the battle that they are engaged in. And so he says, our feet are to be fitted, which is talking about having yourself in a stationary position so when Satan comes against you, he can't knock you down. But oftentimes, there's a lot of people who get knocked down, right? So life can knock you down. Uh, you may go to work one day to find out your job has been no more, right? So you're, you're out of job, and so you, you're kind of knocked back. So what's going to be your stability? How stable are you going to be in that moment in time? You may pick up a phone, and somebody calls you and says, uh, you know, your loved one was just killed in a car accident. I remember that vividly with my sister when we received the phone call that she was killed. So that's, that's something that can knock you down, right? If you have no stability, it just like knocks you backwards. And we need to be able to stand strong and stable against those onslaughts because what does Satan do with those things? Well, he begins filling your mind and your heart with all this negative stuff that he wants you to believe as being truthful when in actuality it is nothing more than a lie. And so we have to have that stability if we're going to be uh, positioned properly in order to win the war, the battle that is in front of us. And so one of the ways that we win that battle is being stable. Secondly, it is to provide protection. Uh, It was a known fact that in war and the Roman um, Empire that oftentimes the enemy would put like like spikes or spears up from the ground so that if a Roman soldier stepped on it, if he didn't have proper footing, that sword would pierce his foot. Well, if you want to take a soldier out of the battle, 
injure his feet. He cannot operate without his feet, right? So if, you're, if you have a, um, a wound in your foot, man, you, you're hobbling around at best, which makes you vulnerable to the enemy. I remember as a kid, uh, I was playing on a wood pile. It was actually in a lumber yard. We shouldn't have been playing there anyways, but we were playing ball tag in the lumber yard. And I stepped on a nail that was sticking up out of, a, out of a board. And so it ran right through my tennis shoe, right up through my foot. And so what, what, what's a kid going to do? I just yank my foot out, and I, you know, I'm hobbling home. So my mom you know, sees it. I'm, I'm crying. And, and so what does she, she and my aunt do? <laughs> like they laid me on the back porch, took off my shoe and socks, and got a bottle of peroxide and poured it right on the wound. <laughs> Glory be. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so, so you, if a soldier has his feet wounded, then he's not any good on, on the battlefield. And the same way is for us. You know, if the goal of Satan is to keep you defeated and to keep you out of the war, how many Christians have been sidelined in their walk with God because of their woundedness? That woundedness may have come from the death of a loved one. That woundedness may come from marital conflict. That woundedness might come in a thousand different ways. And if we're wounded, we have a tendency to sidestep out of the battle and sideline ourselves in our walk and in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And thus we do not then experience the peace of the gospel of peace uh, that is to guard our heart and our mind because we have sidelined ourselves and we're not utilizing the armor that God has given to us through his son Jesus Christ. The third uh, purpose of the shoe for the, the soldier is to give mobility. I mean, these, they wanted the shoes not to be so heavy. It's like, you know, having 10-pound weights on your ankles. They wanted them to be light but sturdy, so they had great mobility. It is said that Alexander the Great and the Persians conquered their known world because his soldiers had such mobility, uh, great mobility in, the, in their battles and in the wars. So it is true with us. If our feet are not ready, we're not ready. And as we're going to see, appropriate footwear is essential in order to win our spiritual warfare. So he says that we are to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now that word peace in the Greek derives itself from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Now, peace can mean a lot of things for a lot of different people, but in essence, the Hebrew word of shalom uh, goes a little deeper. Essentially, it refers to an inner resting of your soul regardless of what's going on around you. And I've put this on your outline to kind of give you the definition, what I call the gospel of peace. It comes from, the, again, the word shalom, which says that it's the inner resting of your soul that doesn't fluctuate based on outside influence. It is a steady peace. It is there. And so when you have that kind of peace, you have traction. When you have that kind of peace, you have protection. When you have that kind of peace, it gives you mobility in the war in which you are fighting. And so a person who is at peace is someone who is stable and calm and orderly and at rest within. What's the opposite of peace? Inner chaos, worry, fear, anxiety. That's where Satan wants you living. So you, you get to choose whether you're going to live heaven down, down or hell up. 
All right, so if you choose to live chaotic and filled with worry and fear and anxiety, that's your choice to make. It's not how you have to live because Jesus has already won your victory, won your battle. You're, you're fighting from victory, not for victory. You're just utilizing what Christ has done on your behalf. It is the spiritual blessing that Paul says is ours through Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. We just need to appropriate it in our hearts and our lives when we are engaged in war. All right, so this means, this means that, you know, when nothing looks right or promising, it's a peace that cradles people who have lost their jobs, but they don't want to lose their minds, right? It's a peace that, that uh, produces praise when there's no money in the bank. It's a peace that produces and restores hope when you're in the face of failing health. It is a peace that is so powerful that we're instructed to let it control us, to allow it to call the shots, to allow it to help us make decisions and dictate our emotions. So um, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, the apostle Paul wrote this. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That word rule means to be an umpire. Now, those of you who are baseball lovers, you understand what an umpire's responsibility is. He is in control of the game. In other words, if you hit the ball and he says it's a foul ball, it's a foul ball, whether you agree with him or not. If the umpire calls strike or ball behind the plate, it's that, whether you agree with him or not. If he calls you out when you're crossing the base, it doesn't matter what you think. The umpire calls the shots. He makes the decisions, and what he says goes. And so what is Paul saying? He says, listen, let the peace of Christ umpire your heart. Let him call the shots. Let him... um, you know, uh, make the call in your life. Let, when, when your life has served you up with a lot of choices and opportunities, we want to allow the peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding that guards our hearts and our minds. And we'll get to that passage in a moment. We're going to allow that to guard our hearts. We're going to allow that to be the umpire of our lives. We're going to allow that to set the course of our lives so that our feet are on the right path that lead to the right destination. For example, oftentimes when you have to make decisions and you're not sure which way to go, one of the, one of the deciding factors can be, do you have peace about that? Does, is the peace of Christ ruling and reigning in your heart as you're about to make this decision that might be a life-changing, life-altering decision? I remember when I was called into ministry, uh, you know, that's, that's a big step. You know, I'm quitting my job. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be going to college, and we've got to pay for college. And, and uh, so how do you make that life-changing decision? You know, is that something of God, or is it just something, you know, you want to do on your own? And so my dad questioned me about that. He says, you sure, you know, you haven't been talked into this? You sure you haven't been brainwashed into this? And, and I said, no, Dad. I said, in spite of not knowing, I, I didn't know where I was going to sco- go to school. I didn't know where I was going to work. Marlon and I had no jobs. We just said, you know what, we're all in. But in spite of the unknown in the future, we had perfect peace about the decision that was made. And so we just went forward from there. And so that's, that's, the, that's the umpire that wants to guard in heart, your heart and your mind in Christ and help to make decisions and to umpire your life and call the shots so that we align our thoughts and our desires underneath the comprehensive rule over every area of our lives so that we will walk in that, that peace. Again, um, if the peace of Christ is ruling automatically, it means that the peace of Christ is present because when the peace of Christ is not present, then something else is ruling you. 
It might be worry. It might be fear. It might be anxiety. It can be a thousand different things. But God wants the peace of Christ to umpire your life. So Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Listen to that. Nor let it be fearful. Let the peace rule. Let it umpire. Um, Jesus is saying that his peace is different from the world's peace. Now the world can offer you peace. It can offer you peace in a pill. It can offer you peace in a bottle. It can offer you peace through entertainment. It can offer you peace through a thousand different things. But here's about the world's peace. Whatever it is you're trying to derive your peace from, once that's used up, your peace is gone. It's out the window. So I might say, you know what, I need peace, I need peace, I, you know, there's just so much going on in my life and I can't handle it and the stress is too much, and I may turn to alcohol as a means by which I'm going to self-medicate, it's my coping mechanism, I'm trying to heal my brokenness through that, and that's fine and well, and I can get smashed face drunk and seemingly have a sense of peace because my body and mind is numb, but when I wake up the next day with the hangover, guess what, I'm right back in the same circumstances, situation nothing's changed about my life, and thus has gone my peace in exchange for a headache. Been there, done that, I don't care, I can't count how many times. So whatever you turn to for your peace, it's nothing but a pseudo-peace. The evil one, Satan, is going to offer you an alternative. Remember, whatever God creates, he counterfeits. So God has created peace, but it only comes through one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So Satan will offer you all kinds of counterfeit avenues of peace, but once that is used up, that peace is gone. I, I can't tell you how many couples have been going through deep marital problems, and they, you know, you know what the... Let's go on a cruise. That'll help us. So they do. They go on a cruise. They have a wonderful time. But when they get back home, now all of a sudden that peace is gone because now they're right back. They're, it's still just them and they, they and them. And there's nothing's changed about the marriage other than they, you know, now they're further in debt paying for the cruise that they went on. But when they come back, the peace is gone and chaos begins to ensue. You kind of get the picture. Absolutely. So Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you so that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, he says in John 16, for I have overcome the world. Now, in order to overcome something, you have to have something to overcome. Peace is always overcoming something. You won't truly know that you have peace until something goes wrong in your life because everyone can feel peaceful when everything's going right and well. Amen? But in the midst of the struggle, the battle, the war, the addictions, the conflicts, or any number of things, that's when you discover that you need to cover your feet with the gospel of peace. And so the secret is the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's talk a, a minute about the relationship of these first three pieces of the armor because they all fit together. And I said these are the pieces of armor you all, you're always wearing. Right? You should always be wearing this. So what was the first piece of the armor? The belt of truth, right? The belt of truth deals with your mind. It deals with your thought processes. And so our convictions are 
ought to be, as followers of Jesus, ought to be guided by God's timeless principles found in his word, not by the ever-eroding popular opinion of our culture. We find our truth in the word of God alone. And so, not what happens to be acceptable at the moment in time to the big issues of life. Now, obviously, when I say that, I'm not talking about, you know, like science, you know, the Bible doesn't, isn't a scientific book. But I'm talking about to the big issues of life, the Word of God gives us the truth that we need to anchor our minds on in order to experience the peace of Christ. And so our success comes by memorizing and meditating upon the truthfulness of God's Word. This is what Psalm 1 says, that if you do that, if you meditate and memorize, you are like a tree planted by the riverbank, and there's the ever-flowing water, which is the Holy Spirit, and what does this tree produce? It produces fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, and so that's where we derive truth that combats the lies that we are fighting in the circle of our mind uh, on a daily basis. And so Joshua 1.8 said, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate upon it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now notice what he says. Be careful that you do. All right, there are some things God has done, but there are things that you must do if you're going to experience God's peace. One of the myths about Christianity is, well, you know, I, I just give my heart to Jesus, and then God just downloads everything in me, and it's just all better after that. No, 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 no. God's got a lot he has downloaded in you. But there are some things that you have to do. Paul tells us that we are to work out the salvation that God has already worked in us. And so it's about utilizing the gospel and what that brings into your heart and your life. But there's some things that you need to do in order for that to happen. And so if you want your thought processes to moving from being lie-based to truth-based, you have to put forth the effort to memorize, to meditate. You say, well, I can't memorize anymore. That's fine. At least allow your mind to meditate upon the truthfulness of God's word as it stacks up against wherever it is you find yourself falling over and over again in this spiritual war that you're having with your enemy. You must have truth that combats the lie because a lie cannot stand up underneath the truth. All right, sin. Then the breastplate of righteousness, that deals with your emotions, all right? So emotions like guilt and fear and shame and worry and anxiety. And so we discovered in that message that we are positionally righteous in Christ, which means when I gave my heart and life to Jesus, uh, I am in Christ, he's in me, and now I'm positionally righteous. That is, God credited my account with the righteousness of Jesus, took my sin account, credited that to Jesus on the cross. He died in my place, and now I stand righteous before God. So Paul says in Romans 8, 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing you ever do can change that position. But now that we are positionally righteous, we also want to live out practical righteousness, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of this newfound gospel that has risen up within you. 
And so it requires making deliberate, prayerful choices and walking in an intentional pathway. This is why God has given us his word. They are God's guardrails. What is the purpose of a guardrail on a road? It is to keep you from experiencing what is on the other side of that guardrail because it is something harmful and potentially would cost you your life. So God has given us parameters called the Word of God, the truth of God, in which we can operate free with a free choice within those parameters. And he's saying, listen, outside of those parameters, it's harmful, it's dangerous, it can cost you your life if you're not careful. So what are you going to choose? Which way are you going to go? You know, the very first time somebody sticks a needle in their arm, they're at a party, and they're all ramped up with their friends, and their friends, hey, let's, why don't you try this drug? And it's not that harmful. You'll, you'll get a great high. And so you stick a needle in your arm, and that first time might be the first time of many times. And then all of a sudden, you are an addict, and the only thing you care about life is the next high. You will lie, you will cheat, you will steal, even among your own family. You didn't set out to do that. It's just the natural consequences of blowing through the guardrails that God has set for us. Been there, done that. It's horrible. Feet fitted with the gospel of peace deals with your will. Your mind, your emotions, your will is called your soul. That is your soul. And so the will is the part of you that makes decisions. What does it make decisions based on? What your mind and your emotions are telling it. And when we are all emotionally charged and we're making emotionally charged decisions, we tend to go with our emotions, even though our mind might be saying, probably not a wise decision. Probably doesn't stack up against the Word of God. For example, if I'm about to make a huge financial decision, what does God's Word say about this? Over 2,000 verses in the New Testament uh, pertaining to finances, how God wants us to handle our finances and deal with finances, but if I just set all that aside because my emotion says, I want this, I don't care what God's word says, then I'm probably going to make an emotionally charged decision that may cost me in the long run. And so if my will's going to make a decision, it would be very wise of me, put on the truth, bring my emotions under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and ask the Holy Spirit, I'm about to make this decision, and as far as I know, I'm not violating the Word of God. I'm not violating a principle of God in light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and concerns. I'm just asking, is this the wise thing to do? If the Holy Spirit gives you peace, then you know you can go forward. This is what God wants to do, because Satan wants to offer you an alternative. He always offers an alternative. Right to bypass what God wants to do. So let's put this in the context of strongholds. A stronghold is a mental fortress from which the Satan operates. The platform is always based on lies. And so that platform based on lies results in what? Self-condemnation. Satan's always going to condemn you. You're a horrible person. Nobody loves you. You're not worth anything. And so he starts condemning you emotionally and fills your emotions then with fear and worry and anxiety and shame and guilt and all of those things. So these first three pieces of the armor combat that. 
So rather than allowing Satan to build a fortress based on lies, the belt gives you truth to challenge those lies, to tear down those lies. And when I begin tearing down the lies and I begin thinking correctly, then it results, rather than self-condemnation, it results in my newfound righteousness in Christ. Hey, wait a minute. Uh, God's not going to condemn me. He might convict me of sin, but, but that's only to bring me back to him, not to push me away from him. Satan always condemns to push you away from God, never to draw you towards God. I'm righteous in Christ. I may have sinned. Yes, Satan, you are right. I have sinned. I I, have done some bad things, but I am still righteous in Jesus. Nothing can change my position in Christ. And when you start living that way, mentally and emotionally, it begins to trigger and begins to root out the fear and the anxiety, the guilt and the shame, and replaces it with God's perfect peace. That's how all this operates. That is the battle. So here's the reason for the shoes as armor. Number one is the peace of God, peace with God. Remember, the Bible says that you are created spirit, soul, and body. All right? Your spirit is your inner core, then the soul, mind, will, and emotions, and then your physical body. Now watch this. Whenever we're trying to change something, humanly speaking, We try to work from the outside in. God always works from the inside out. So when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior of your life, and you slid your life under the Lordship of Christ, and you're allowing him to be the CEO of your life, to be the director of your life, the moment you made that decision to enter into God's family through his son, Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. Because prior to that, the Bible says that we were enemies of God. We are at war with God, even though we may not have understood that or even acknowledged that from God's perspective, sin had separated us. We were at war. We were enemies. And so God brought reconciliation. He brought peace in that relationship through Jesus Christ. So Romans 5.1 says that when we receive Christ, we receive peace. We are at peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. He is our Father. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants what is best for us, and so he's provided everything for us to make that happen, and we were given a new nature. That means in your spirit, the inner core of your being, your spirit was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So watch this. There is nothing wrong with your spirit. It's perfect because that's where the Holy Spirit's residing. Listen, it's the only place in the spiritual realm of darkness that Satan has no access to is your spirit. But he does have access to your soul. And this is the problem. The spirit is trying to operate through our distorted and our defective soul, right? It's imperfect. Why is that? Because growing up, a lot of things happened to us. A lot of things distorted and and distracted our soul. It might have been what your parents said to you, the way your mother talked to you, the way your father talked to you, the way you were treated. It brought inner woundedness. It might be what your peers said or did to you. It might be that life's, you know, events that have happened to you, and, and maybe they were horrible events. Maybe you were physically abused. Maybe you were mentally abused. And so all of that is the distortion of our soul. So when we get saved, yes, we have the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, we have a brand new nature. But that brand new nature is trying to operate through that distorted soul that we possess. 
So the process of reorienting your soul, your mind, will, and emotions is called sanctification, right? That's the lifelong process, and that's where the battle resides with our enemy is in our soul. And then the soul lives itself out through the body. So you have to keep that in mind. Your soul, your mind, will, and emotions is affected by so many different changing variables. That's why, you know, if, let's say if you're a worry wart and something happens and all of a sudden it creates enormous anxiety and worry and fear inside of you, over time, man, you're, you're like your eye starts to twitch, your heart starts to palpitate, there's a shortness of breath. Why? Because the body is reacting to your distorted soul. I was a psychology major, and one of the things I studied, it was psychosomatic illnesses. Psychosomatic illnesses are illnesses that are real. Uh, they, they, they really happen, but a doctor cannot find the reason behind them because they, it is the soul reacting um, to, its, it, to the events around it, and so the soul is so overreacting that it is coming out of your body in a physical way. I love that study. Psychosomatic illness. This is what Satan wants to do. See, he wants you to take off your shoes of peace. He wants you to live a chaotic life. He wants you to say things and do things that you will forever regret. So just remember this. You cannot fix yourself. You can't fix yourself. Jesus can fix you, but you can't fix yourself. That's why New Year's resolutions never last, right? You, you might learn how to manage yourself, but you'll never fix yourself. You might learn how to manage your sin, but you'll never fix the sin problem or issue that's in your life. God works first from the spirit, then to the soul, and finally to the body. If you want your body to be victorious in spiritual warfare, you've got to allow the soul to become victorious in spiritual warfare. And then if you want that victory, you've got to tap into the spirit. Because watch this. When you tap into the spirit and you align yourself under the spirit, even with a distorted soul, the peace of Christ can be released upon you in whatever condition you're in. That's what we're going to learn to do, right? So um, in order to do that, um, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 4. So there's peace with God, but then there is the peace of God. The peace of God. The Holy Spirit, this is how it works, releases the truth, the essence of the presence of God, the DNA of God into our human spirit. Our spirit delivers it to our soul Yet if we're not experiencing release in our lives to the greater degree, it's because um, we haven't grabbed onto that truth yet. Because it must agree with my soul and spirit must be in agreement. Listen, this is why Satan has no more power over you than you're willing to give him. He has no ability to make you do anything. He can suggest it. He can tempt you with it. He can do a lot of things in your thought processes, but he cannot force you to do anything. So if you learn how to bring the soul in alignment with the spirit, 
That's what begins to release the peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what it says in Philippians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Oh, wait, back up. Circle that word anything. Do not be anxious. Don't worry about any. Don't be fearful about anything, but in everything. Circle that by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, here, here's our responsibility, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, the only way to experience true and authentic peace is to submit your mind, will, and emotions, your soul, to the overarching truth of God. So let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, you go to, you go to work tomorrow and your boss says, sorry, no job. Well, you didn't anticipate this happening and some things that happened in your life this year, and it's kind of really stretched you financially, and so all of a sudden you have no job, you got no money in the bank. So what's the first thing that's going to happen? Well, I guarantee you the first thing that's going to happen is Satan's going to say, see, I told you God doesn't care about you. I told you he doesn't love you. I told you he wouldn't be there when you needed him. And so now your heart begins to get flooded with fear and worry and anxiety. And what if, and what if this happened, and what if that doesn't happen? How's this going to affect my future? How's it going to affect my family? And all these things, these things are rolling around in our minds. Our emotions are off the chart. So what is God's truth to that? Well, God's truth to that, if you look in the Scripture, God says, well, listen, wait, 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 wait a minute. I can supply everything you need. In fact, Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, where you're going to live. He says, do you not understand your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all those things? Look at the lilies of the field, the bird of the airs. Does he not care for them? Sure he does. But he cares for you far much more than they do. Therefore, he comes down to the end. He says, Therefore, now, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then everything you need will be added unto you. So those are two truths, two promises I have. So here's my choice. Either I'm going to listen to Satan and go down that pathway, or I'm going to listen to God and go down his pathway. In other words, I'm going to start focusing my thought either on what God promises, or I'm going to focus my thoughts upon what Satan promises. And what Satan promises is God won't be there. God won't supply. I'm telling you, don't trust him because in the end, he's going to let you down. And one of the things I might base that on is that my mind will immediately go back, my emotions immediately go back to a time in my life when I was putting my full weight and trust in another human being. And guess what? In the end, they let me down. They backed out. I was left standing holding the bag. I thought, you know, that's when what? I made one of those inner vows. Remember the inner vows, self-protection. Nobody's going to hurt me like that ever again. That inner vow was I will never trust anyone like that ever, ever again. And that inner vow becomes more precious to me than even God's word itself. So now I've got this battle going on inside of me. What am I going to do? 
Who am I going to trust? Where are my thoughts going to lie? Because it's very important. At this point, what you think about. And so, uh, your soul's telling you, hey, you're broke. <laughs> they're going to turn the lights off. They're going to kick you out of your house. The whole scenario that goes on in our mind. So when we come to Philippians chapter 4, again, when Paul wrote these words, he's, in, you know, he's chained to a guard, and, and these guards that were selected to be chained to prisoners in Rome as they're awaiting trial, is the, they were the worst of the worst. Ignatius, who was a second century Christian, who uh, was also chained to Roman guards before his execution, he said, he wrote in his writings, his diary, they were wild beasts. And the more, the, the more fair you tried to treat them, the worse they became. Now, we read in Philippians chapter 1 that Paul obviously led several of them to Christ, and that's how the gospel got into the empire that began to spread and that led to, um, you know, like Constantine coming to to faith in Jesus on down the road. So remember, uh, Paul, he's writing these words. When you read Paul's catalog of his afflictions on his Facebook page, here's kind of what he says. He says, man, uh, here's the physical, emotional, and spiritual hardships in my life, including hunger, imprisonment, betrayal. Five times he's given brutalizing punishment by flogging, beaten by rods, shipwrecked, left to dead. And he writes and he says, I have learned the secret to being able to smile through all this. I've learned the secret how to be content in all of this, how to reside in the peace of Jesus through all of this. I've learned that. What you do not find Paul doing is that you never find Paul writing about how awful prison was, how heavy the chains were that were placed upon him, how bad the food was, how cold he was, how miserable he was. He does not turn it inward with a self-pity, self-preoccupation, self-concern, but he always turns it outward, and he says, you know what? I'm suffering these things. I'm inflicted by these things, but I understand that it is ultimately for the advancement of the gospel. That's a whole different mindset, because that's not normally what we do. We get up, and we have our pity parties. We've all been there. You know, we, we, get, we get depressed, and for days we can't eat, we can't sleep, we can't do any of these things because it's just it, it, we become self-preoccupied, and we forget about what God can do. So he says that the peace will guard your heart and your mind. The guard means to completely surround like with a fortified city to protect you from invasion. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, when they stood up against the king and they're thrown in the fiery furnace, which is, you know, the temperature was, you know, exceeding seven times hotter than normal. God did not keep them out of the furnace, but God walked with them in the furnace. That's what God says he will do. So when the bottom drops out, like I said, God's in the bottom. His voice is in the bottom. His peace is in the bottom. His presence is in the bottom. There is nowhere you go that God is not there. So here's kind of in my mind what I think about it's three words. You might want to write this down. It's not on your outline. I think about what if, that would, and God will. What if, that will, and God will. Well, what if this happens? Well, that would be horrible. That, that would not be what I really want to see happen, but I know that God will supply what is needed. See, that's the mindset you want to have. So here's what Paul says to us. And Philippians 4, as you're aligning your soul under the rule of the Holy Spirit and it releases peace, here's how that happens, is that you have to think bigger. 
right? How do I, 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 the discipline of thinking. When Paul talks about these, these thought processes, he's referring to more than just like general truths, right? He's thinking about the heavy things in life, what we would call doctrine. There's one of the things that we don't teach a lot in church anymore. We used to have whole studies on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation. People are like, oh, I'm bored with that. Just give me three easy steps and, you know, two little things I can do to get my life back in order. And, get back. and so we don't think about the heavy things in life anymore, these core doctrines of the Bible. And so this is completely different from what you will find when you walk into any bookstore or go to the section on worry, anxiety, and dealing with stress, right? Here's what you're going to find out is that... Uh, <laughs> It, if a book says, are you stressed? Are you worried? Are you fearful? Um, it's not going to ask you the big questions like, well, what is the meaning of life? And why are you really here? And what is life all about? And where have you come from? And where are you going? And why do human beings exist on planet Earth anyway? See, these are the big lofty things that the doctrines of the Bible, the questions that the doctrine of the Bible answers, establishing your worldview, the basis of your belief that guides and directs your life. Those are weighty, thoughtful things. In our day and time, in our Western culture, we just want three easy steps for anything. And if the three easy steps don't work, then give us some other, you know, thing that we can do quickly because we are a microwave society. We want it done quickly, over with, in 30 minutes, boom, like the sitcoms that we watch. Peace comes from a disciplined thinking out of the implications of what you believe. And it all ties back to the gospel. Is Jesus really the Son of God? Did he really come to earth? Did he die on a cross for your sins and mine? Did he endure infinite suffering so that you could someday be taken away from this world and he'll wipe away every tear and you'll enter into a place that he has gone to prepare for you? If so, then all the comfort in this world is tied up in Christ, right? So even though we may go through painful things, the things like the Apostle Paul, my ultimate hope is not in the here and now. My ultimate hope is in Jesus as he walks through life with me, giving me his peace in the midst of all of my turmoil, and that one day I will enter into his presence for eternity where I will have perfect peace for all of eternity, as opposed to saying, well, you know, you were born by accident, you were just a random act of chance, and therefore this life is all there are is, and so if you are experiencing horrible things, that's too bad. For 70, 80 years, you're just going to have to endure it. This is the best life has to offer, and when it's all over with, you die, and that's it. Two whole different perspectives. Either Jesus is on the throne ruling all things for you, or this is as good as it gets. You've got to discipline your thoughts, discipline your thanksgiving. Why should I thank God ahead of time? Because essentially, Paul is calling on us to trust in the sovereignty of God. His rule over history, his rule over life. He's telling us that we will never be content unless we make it our heartfelt request that we acknowledge that our lives and our, are in his hands and that he is far wiser than us. Now, here's the last one, and this is the most important one, is that we have to reorder our loves, our love. He says, whatever is lovely, admirable, anything excellent, praiseworthy. What do I mean by that? Is that we love a lot of things, but your life will always move in the direction of what you love the most. 
Now, our hearts are idol-making machines. And an idol is anything I love more than God. It's not that God is telling us we shouldn't love people or that we shouldn't love things or you shouldn't love your dog or you shouldn't love your cat. Well, maybe your cat, but you shouldn't love... Don't write me. Okay, so that's not what he's saying. He's saying is this. If, If Jesus is not at the center of my life, If he is not the all-consuming thing in my heart, then probably whenever whenever I lose that which I love more than him, now what happens? You're filled with worry and fear and anxiety because you're loving what is mutable rather than what is immutable. Everything that we love in this world is temporary. Only God is eternal. Only God is unchanging. Everything that we have is changing. Our finances, our homes, our cars, all those things we tend to put our love stock into, even people. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Everybody dies eventually and leaves planet Earth. That is a painful thing. And yes, we should love our parents and we should love our children and we should love our aunts and uncles and grandparents. I'm not saying you don't love them. I'm just saying you need to make sure that you reorder your love life so that it is rooted in God more than anything because God cannot be taken away. His peace cannot be removed. He is the eternal God who wants to have time with you to speak into your life, to direct you, to guide you, even when everything is chaotic. So how do we How do we bring ourselves to love God more? Well, here's the answer. God is intangible. He's invisible. I can't see him. The only tangible thing I have is the word of God who tells me about Jesus and what Jesus has done for me. So the peace that Paul's talking about all ties back into the gospel of Christ. When I focus on that, when I think about that, when I allow my mind and my emotions to lock into that, then I am convinced of God's eternal love for me, and that's where my greatest love goes back to, is my Heavenly Father who gave His Son, Jesus Christ, His love gift. So let me close with this. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer who lost everything. He had, possession-wise, in the Chicago Fire of 1871. Two years after that, he sent his wife Anna and their four daughters on a ship to England. Partway across the ocean, that ship collided with another ship. It began to sink. Anna gathered up her four daughters and brought them out on the main deck. They began to pray, and the ship went under. The waves separated them. All four daughters drowned. Anna was rescued unconscious by another ship and was taken on to England. And there she sent a wire back to her husband. And it only had two words, saved alone. Now you can imagine for Horatio Spafford, that was devastating news. And so he boarded a ship on his way to England to bring his wife back home. And as while he was over that spot where that ship went down, that he wrote the great hymn, It is well with my soul. If you've ever read the lyrics of that song, 
he says, it is well with my soul. He ties everything back to the gospel of Christ. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges God's love and grace over his life. Through his son, Jesus Christ, he ties it all back to the gospel of peace. Why would a man who just lost four daughters and sing, it is well with my soul, tie it all back to the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is our peace. That's where we find peace. That's where we find hope. That's where we anchor our soul so that no matter what is going on around us, outside of us, we can maintain perfect peace in the midst of it all. Because God looks at the cross and we look at the cross and God says to us, you know what? I lost a son also. Not involuntarily, but voluntarily so that you and I might become a part of his family. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, when you read the lyrics, you watch a man who is thinking, thanking, and loving God into perfect peace. It worked for him. It worked for the Apostle Paul. It will work for you because God's peace then becomes your compass for life. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we are so thankful and grateful that again, you enable us to do things, to live in a way that is absolutely impossible for us to do on our own, but you have given us your Holy Spirit who equips us, who empowers us, who enables us to live a life that we could not have ever lived apart from his indwelling presence. Lord, I pray that over every person here today. I pray that over every person who will watch this video, who is online live and who will watch it later, that when we stand in the midst of the battle, that we will begin thinking truth, thinking about the big things in life, we think bigger and we, we prepare ourselves um, for this battle that we find ourselves engaged in. That we would be disciplined in our lives with thanksgiving, with hearts that are filled with gratitude and gratefulness. And that, oh God, we would, we would allow our, our love for you just to explode as we just go right back into the gospel and all that you have done for us and all that you're doing in us and all that you have prepared for us in the future and that our hearts will explode in love for you and knowing that regardless of what's going on around us, inside of us, that we can maintain the peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding. We thank you, O oh Father, for the gospel of Jesus, for your magnificent, incredible love as the Apostle Paul prayed and wrote about, oh, the, if we could just begin to understand the height and the width and the depth of your love for us, how it would change our entire perspective about what we encounter in life. So we thank you, O oh God, for the the ability to fit our feet 
with the readiness of the gospel of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.